strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight I'm going to tell you about Alan Turing. You may know his name from his unquestionable genius and landmark contributions to the fields of computer science, code breaking, and artificial intelligence. Most recently, you may have heard his name in the news as this visionary is going to be honored by placing his image on the 50-pound note of Britain. This honor, bestowed upon him by the very same nation that convicted him for his sexual preference, stripped him of his security clearance, and watched as his reputation was destroyed until his eventual death. This is the story of Alan Turing. So I've been reading. I've been working on this for two weeks, and I was like, how do you say it? How do you do it? And I was like, I don't know. Truthfully. I was like, I don't know how to do it. Like, all of it's just, it's really, it's really difficult to talk about. Alan Matheson Turing was born in 1912 in Paddington, England, to a decidedly upper-middle-class couple. His parents met and were married in India, while his father was in the Indian Civil Service, and his mother was the daughter of a prominent British engineer who was also working in India at the time. Just as his parents were, as a child... His parents were still working in India, so Alan and his brother were shuffled from relative to relative. None of these homes, none of these homes or relatives encouraged Alan's burgeoning interest in math and science. Rather, they found it to be a wasteful preoccupation. Later in life, Alan would recall one particular book from which he found inspiration called Natural Wonders Every Child Should Know. Oh, cute. <laughs> I just want to, I imagine like Do a they little, have that now? I know. I did not look it up. I'm sorry. His mother was persistently horrified by his interest, thinking that he would shame the family when he entered school. Throughout his early education, he was seen as quite intelligent, but was not known for being a very good student. As you may know or may not know, those two things do not necessarily go hand in hand. Being good at school does not necessarily mean that you are intelligent. And being bad in school does not necessarily mean that you are unintelligent. At the age of 13, Alan would be accepted to and would go to the Sherborne School, a boarding independent school in the market town of Sherborne in Dorset. The first day of term coincided, though, with the 1926 general strike. But he was so determined to attend school that he rode his bicycle unaccompanied. 60 miles from Southampton to Sherborne, stopping overnight at an inn on the way. That is some serious determination to be educated. 13 years old, rode his bike 60 miles. He's like, I'm not missing, not missing my first day of school. But he had to stay overnight? He had to stop at an inn. Yeah. He was like, I'm getting on my bike. I'm heading out of here. I got like my backpack. I got like my kerchief on a stick. So he does that like every time. So it's like... So five days a week, he only goes to school. No, it's like a boarding school. It's a boarding school. Oh, oh so he's there. Okay. Yeah, boarding school. I was like, no, I was like, that's an awful no. commute. <laughs> Here at this school, few of his teachers were impressed with his genius level mind for math and science. The school rather focused on the classics, as that was the base for the idea of being a well educated gentleman. Mm-hmm. One headmaster even told him that if his interest lay in math and science, there was little point in him attending school. Huh? Right? Asshole. It's just a different world, I think, we're talking about. But it was at this school, Sherborne, that Alan met Christopher Morcom. 
I would be remiss not to mention this young man in connection with Alan, as he seemed to have a quite a profound influence on his life. Christopher was his intellectual equal and companion. The two boys were very close and inspired each other. I like to think of them as Dumbledore and Grindelwald, but without the plans to take over the world. But just talking constantly about ideas and theories. And Christopher is described as Alan's first love. That is not to say that their relationship was sexual in nature. I have no idea if it was or not. I would just be making it up. But what is known is that in 1930, Christopher died suddenly of bovine tuberculosis. And that loss had a tremendous impact on Alan's life. He spent years after the loss continuing to write to Christopher's mother. He felt that he must do all of the things that Christopher could not do. He felt that he had to push himself harder, learn more, and understand more. He turned his thoughts to mind and matter. If the mind is matter, then upon death is that matter released. These ideas led him to the study of physics and quantum mechanics. He always felt that the energy of a person, and especially the energy of Christopher, that he he felt like it was never gone. Mm-hmm. And he always wanted to understand that transition. And that really inspired him at a very young age. Uh, Christopher died when I think he was 17. So they were not quite out of high school. Alan went on to attend King's College at Cambridge, where he earned first-class honors in mathematics. No surprise there. It was also here at Cambridge where his homosexuality became part of his identity. He pursued and enjoyed both intellectual and physical companionship with fellow students. He spent his free time running, rowing, and sailing. In 1936, Alan was working on his Ph.D. at Princeton. It was here that he published the paper on computable numbers with an application to the Enschein-Dunks problem. In this paper, Turing introduced the idea of a theoretical machine that could solve any problem that could be described by simple instructions encoded on paper tape. That is to say that if you give a machine a set of rules or code, that it would be able to perform functions based on those rules. I love the paper tape. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, I'm, I'm paying So there were no them, hard like, drives. Yeah, like paper rolling tape. it out and like having. <laughs> Turing demonstrated you could construct a single universal machine that could simulate any Turing machine, which is what he called this machine. And as long as it had the correct codes, one machine could solve any problem, perform any task for which a program could be written. So essentially, in 1936, he described the idea of the computer. <laughs> The fucking computer. Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, and Turing Machine is definitely, you know, the base inspiration for the computer. Yeah. That if you give a machine a set of rules to follow. On paper tape. And then ask it to perform a function based on that set of rules, it should be able to do give so. give you a solution. Exactly. God damn. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are, rather than 
what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know. Try like, to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to <laughs> podcasts on. Yeah, podcast, your, homecasts. Your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. As the Allied forces prepared for World War II, they were desperately short on people who could do the complex work of military calculations. They also needed engineers who could crack the German Navy's Enigma code. Turing worked with the British top-secret government code and cipher school at Bletchley Park. At Bletchley Park, he was known for his eccentricity. He trained his tea mug to the radiator so that others would not use it. When frustrated with poor staffing, he went over the heads of military officials and wrote directly to Churchill himself, demanding increased staffing so that they could achieve their goal. There, at Bletchley Park, code-breaking became an industrial process, with 12,000 people working three shifts 24-7. Oh, wow. Oh, where did he put them? <laughs> there, I, Google Bletchley Park. I mean, Google it. Phone? How pretty is that place? I hope everyone else is looking as up as I am. Shit. Yeah, man. Wow. Fuck yeah. I want to work at Bletchley Park. This is like some government. That's an entire town. Top secret. It is an entire freaking city. Look yeah, at that. man. It's huge. Wow. Okay. And so, although the Polish had cracked the Enigma before the war, the Nazis had made new and improved and more complicated Enigma machines. And there were now approximately 10 to the 114th power possible permutations. Turing, not to be defeated, designed an electromechanical machine called the bomb that searched through the permutations, and by the end of the war, the British were able to read all German naval enigma traffic. It has been reported that Eisenhower said the contribution of Turing and the others at Bletchley Park shortened the war by as much as two years, saving millions of lives. It was also at Bletchley Park where he met and worked closely with a woman named Joan Clark. He proposed marriage to her, and she accepted. He told her immediately of his homosexuality, and she was not surprised by it. Regardless, though, the engagement did not last, but their friendship did. I imagine when you're working that closely with, like, a essentially a mad genius, if he proposes marriage to you, you're probably going to say yes. I imagine that these people are working at a different mental level mm -hmm. than most of us. I mean, I would expect that sex would be a part of my marriage, but I guess Joan Clark was willing to overlook that um, to be married to a genius. And I mean, she was also a code breaker. She was no dumb dumb herself. She was just ready for a companionship. She's like, yeah, totally. Separate rooms. Oh, awesome. Well, cool. I mean, just that. It's like we're talking like the 1940s, like, you know, and he would probably be willing to like have a baby with her to like for like... You know, one for looks there's one turkey <laughs> one baby <laughs> turkey basters one baby and stuff things can be made to happen well i think that what you said is exactly right like why companionship i know in 1950 he published a paper called computing machinery and intelligence 
He had an idea that eventually computers would be so powerful that they would be able to think on their own. He foresaw a day when artificial intelligence would be a reality. Ugh, scares the shit out of me. But how would you know if a machine was intelligent or not? Well, he devised a test called the Turing test. A judge sitting at a computer terminal types questions to two entities. One is a person. The other is a computer. The judge decides which entity is human and which is the computer. If the judge is wrong, then the computer has passed the Turing test and is intelligent. Turing believed that by the year 2000, there would be an AI developed that could pass the Turing test. But as of yet, none has. Nothing? Nope. Okay, good. So there's been a couple that have claimed it, but it's never been reproducible. Oh, right. Ugh. I'm so nervous. I mean, it's going to be great for like medicine and science and all that great, but I am. I mean, I think it's definitely something to be feared. Petrified of it. Why well, not petrified? But I'm fucking scared. I mean, there is a certain level. I mean, I'll be very honest with you. Alexa scares me a little. I'm not going to lie. That's why I don't have one. I know. I'm like, I don't want that in my house. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, so no AI has passed it yet because to be able to really truly pass the Turing test, it has to pass it more than once. It can't just be a fluke. Like with any oh, research, yeah, it must continue. be reproducible, yeah. right? And just because one judge feels that... And reproducible with different questions or the same questions. So this way I think it's not overall, like random. I think it has to be overall. I think that like Or maybe repetitive, people, maybe like question one and five are the same. To kind of trick it to make sure it gives the same answers. It's maybe. not just a, yeah. a just a random. I'm not an expert on the Turing test. No, I'm just saying that maybe. So I'll not. tell you, guys, I did my best on his work. I hope that I explained it to you in a way that makes sense. It took me a long time to figure I it all it. out. I, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on any of his works. And I know that I have I have skated over a significant amount of his achievements. But that was to get to the next step because I want you to kind of understand him as a person. And so I want you to see him as the brilliant, hardworking, and certainly unthreatening person that he is. Oh, no. But he had one major flaw in the eyes of the law, and that was that he was a homosexual. You see, in the 1950s, homosexuality was illegal in Great Britain. There's a significant history behind it and a set of laws that wiggled their way all the way into the 20th century. In 1533, our boy, Henry VIII, passed the Buggery Act, which outlawed the detestable and abominable vice of buggery. The act defined buggery as an unnatural sexual act against the will of God and man. This was later defined by the courts to include anal penetration and bestiality. This meant that a convicted sodomite's possessions could be confiscated by the government rather than going to their next of kin, and that even priests and monks could be executed for this offense, even though prior to this, they could not even be executed for murder. This act was primarily designed to express power over the clergy, and, and it was utilized to execute monks and nuns and take over monastery lands. These same tactics had been used 200 years before by Philip IV of France against the Knights Templar. Jeez. The act remained in force until it was repealed and replaced by the Offenses Against Persons Act in 1828. 
and buggery would remain a capital offense until 1861. That's right, a capital offense, as in if you are caught with an animal or having anal sex, you could be hanged and put to death. In 1885, an amendment to this act, known as the La Boucherre Amendment, was made. And this made gross indecency a crime, which... Oh, please. Is... I can think of 10 people in my head right now. Of course you can. (laughs) This law was used to prosecute homosexuals, specifically, because if you could not actually prove the sodomy or the anal intercourse, then that way you could just say that they were doing indecent acts, and then that way you could still prosecute them. The penalty for which was life in prison. This penalty was so harsh that few people were actually successfully prosecuted. Oscar Wilde, though, was successfully prosecuted for this crime in England and was convicted and sentenced to two years of hard labor. So with this little bit of background information, we'll just doodly-doo, back in our time machine to 1950s, Alan Turing. In early 1952, Alan Turing called the police to report a break-in at his home. When questioned by the police, he revealed that he knew the intruder, a young Manchester man named Arnold Murray. Murray was 19 and unemployed. Alan had met him while he was walking along the Oxford Road, and they had met and gotten along and went out to lunch together. During the investigation into the burglary, though, Alan admitted to having a sexual relationship with Arnold Murray. Both men were arrested for gross indecency. At the initial proceeding, the solicitor that represented Turing did not argue or provide evidence against the allegations. He was convinced by his solicitor and his brother that he should plead guilty. This gave him a choice between probation or imprisonment. It's just so crazy because like, the gross indecency just makes me think of something that's done in public, right? So you have like... Uh, you know, if you urinate and out in public, if all these like certain things that like, okay, yeah, you can be locked up for like a day, you know, whatever, it's fine. Get sure. Put in the drunk tank, like the, the drunk tank, whatever it is. And, and drunk tank, yeah. fine. All that, all that kind of stuff. Don't but be weird. This, get it, it together. Yeah. And that's why I said earlier, I was like, I can name a handful of people in my head right now. That's <laughs> like gross indecency. I mean, you know, in Robin, this fucking world. How many? Like, how many times have you witnessed me pee on the street? Exactly. I was like, us be- peeing like behind a dumpster at like 2 a.m. I get that. But like this, it it's... This was very specific. Yeah. I, I the don't... idea of gross indecency was very specific to prosecute and criminalize homosexuality. But they're not doing anything in public. They're not doing... They're doing everything in the safety of their own Exactly. Home. Why is it... You why could be is accused gross... of... It's not gross. They're not doing it in front of you. Yeah. You're, there's nothing gross about it. It's just a human being walking down the fucking street. Yeah. Gets me so angry. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm gonna, uh, I mean, I'm it should be pissed off this night. Well, we have like five more pages. I and know. Gonna... I'm looking at your giant handful of papers in your hand. I know. It's not great. So essentially his brother and his lawyer were like, you should just plead guilty. Like, don't make a big thing of it. Like, you know, let's just like sweep it under the rug. And so he had a choice between imprisonment or probation. So, of course, if you're going to make a choice, what are you going to choose? Of course, you're going to choose probation. Probation. But the condition of his probation was that he had to undergo a medical procedure to decrease his libido. 
and he accepted those constraints and remained a free man. This procedure is also known as chemical castration and was done through a series of injections of synthetic estrogen that would decrease his libido. And over the course of the following year, Turing would become impotent and suffer gynecomastia, or enlarged breast tissue. Holy shit. Oh my god. It should be noted that Murray was eventually released. No life sentence. No injections. He 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 went the... He probably just sat the there. Route well, he probably just didn't have a lawyer, and he probably just sat there until they were like, just fucking release him. I can't deal with him anymore. Yeah, release him. We need it for somewhere else. Right. Whatever. But because... You know, but Alan, he did he that. had a lawyer, and he's like, you know, I just want to like, I just want this to be over with. Were these estrogen shots like in his butt or in his penis? I think they were in his butt, probably, mm-hmm. or like arms or thighs. I mean, any muscle. They're usually intramuscular. Also, once convicted, his security clearance was stripped from him, and he was barred from participation in any of his cryptographic work that he was so well known for. He was also denied entrance into the United States after his conviction because part of... It's a prisoner. Yeah, so... He had a record. The United States, specifically at this time, denied security clearance to homosexuals. And anyone who was in allegiance with the United States also had to strip security clearance from homosexuals at this time. Are you serious? The idea was that they had this thing that could be um, manipulated and extorted. So they would take prisoners and criminals from other countries? No. But not, okay. All right. No, no, no. I mean, sure. Yes. Yes. But Very not possibly. Homosexuals were flagged. That, that's a, yes. Like, nope, nope. Sorry. Well, Specifically, if you worked in any, like, there could be no evidence of being a homosexual and working in the intelligence community, right? Because that is a weakness that can be exploited by a foreign government is the idea that they tout as fucking hot garbage as that all is. As um, much of a dumpster fire as this story is, I will continue on. Okay. All right. It is said that he continued to work as a professor and to do experiments at home and that he was not terribly bothered by the physical changes or his lack of security clearance. In fact, his friends said that he said he was going through a metamorphosis and he didn't know what he was going to become. But his scientific brain was curious enough to be like, well, we'll we'll see where this lands, (laughs) you know, Um, but that he was in generally good spirits. But on June 8th, 1954, Alan Turing was found dead in his home by his housekeeper. He had died the previous day. Next to his body was a half-eaten apple. The coroner's inquest determined that Turing's death was a suicide by poisoning. The poison was cyanide. Though the apple was never tested, there is speculation that the apple was laced with cyanide and that that was the manner in which the poison was consumed. But just four days after his death, his body was cremated, and there would be no further investigation. But there would be plenty of conspiracy and speculation. It is said that he had a list of tasks to complete upon his return to work, and that those who saw him close to his death 
stated that he was not acting differently and was not outwardly in despair. His mother believes that the ingestion was accidental because he was known to be very careless with chemicals. Maybe he just chose an apple. <laughs> he did not. He was definitely he was definitely poisoned with cyanide. Oh, okay. I'm like that's that's not in that's not in debate. Okay. It's All more right. of the how. All right. I'm like, so definitely died by cyanide. <laughs> no. All right. Definitely died by cyanide poisoning. Okay. So <clears throat> I thought maybe there's a cover up to like them. It's just more of there's okay. this idea of, you know, he didn't really seem suicidal. I mean, so was it? Was it really suicide? Was there something else was, going on? Was, uh, you know, was his delivery of apples placed there specifically by someone? Whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's this one thought that he was reenacting a scene from Snow White, which was a favorite of his, and that having this apple be there gave his mother like a plausible deniability. Uh, she was a very religious woman, basically saying so she could believe that it was an uh, accident. That he never did it. Yeah. Upon later analysis of the coroner's report, some believe that. The injuries that he suffered were closer to an inhalation injury rather than ingestion. And it is also worth saying that Alan did have potassium cyanide in his house and an apparatus used for electroplating that would have created the capability of him to have inhaled those toxic fumes. Wow. So what? He just sat there, inhaled his toxic fumes, eating an apple, and just waited? Or, or it was an accident. Yeah. He was well known to just get up to like yeah. experiments in his house. And I was like, oh, I'm going to have a snack. Have yeah. An he's like messing with some stuff, feels a little weird, thinks maybe he feels lightheaded, gets up, grabs an apple, takes a bite of it. Low blow sugar. Yeah. Right. Like thinking, oh, like I, I, I feel a, a little off. Yeah. I just need to eat something. Right. I mean, you know, the thing is when. When someone dies and an investigation is done and it's very clear how they died. Or it seems to be very clear. Not a whole lot else is done. I know. Right? It's like you're looking at someone who's a convicted a convicted criminal who has had these incredible changes go through his body, <sighs> has been stripped of his security clearance, and has had a significant portion of his professional career stripped away from him. And, you know, it seems very clear that, like, okay, well, he's, like, poisoned inside his own house, not by someone else. It must be suicide. He has access to the chemicals, but they never tested the actual apple True. for cyanide. So it's like, okay, so if he laced this particular apple, put skin cyanide in it, yeah. did he do that? And then, you know, but there, I mean, there's a lot of different theories. So there is, of course, the theory that secret services considered him to be a threat to national security because he was a homosexual and now he was an outed homosexual um, and that they had had him eliminated. There is zero real, you know, any evidence to back up that statement. But while any part or none of these ideas may be true, what is a fact is that his death was a tragic loss of a brilliant mind. And the possibility that he was driven to suicide by depression because of physical issues that stemmed from his chemical castration is even more shameful. That after all of his work to save his nation during wartime, the nation so easily discarded him. In 2009, John Graham Cumming started a petition urging the British government to apologize to Turing, uh, apologize for Turing's prosecution, uh, 
and he received over 30,000 signatures. On September 10, 2009, Prime Minister Gordon Brown released a statement describing Turing's treatment as appalling. And he said how deeply sorry I and we all are for what happened to him. So on behalf of the British government and all those who live freely, thanks to Alan's work, I am very proud to say we're sorry. You deserved so much better. And on December 23rd, 2013, Queen Elizabeth signed an official pardon for Alan Turing. Oh, my God. But people called the government out on this. Oh, come on. And they're like, so because he's famous, he gets a pardon. And everyone else who got convicted and had the same shit happen to them. Like, there's no apologies for all the other people that over the past numerous centuries have been prosecuted for similar crimes. So, well, it's difficult to remember. We have to remember that this was just 60 years ago, not a time so long forgotten in which a person could have their body mutilated by the government based on who they chose to love. And now that nation that stripped him of his security clearance after being, after helping to end a world war a nation that publicly shamed him, tortured him, is now placing his image on the 50-pound note. And on that 50-pound note will be the quote, This is only a foretaste of what is to come, and only the shadow of what is going to be. And that's like one of his most famous quotes. And that's what they're planning to put on that piece of currency. And all I can say is that I hope that as humans, we are actually trying to get better. These days are seeming very dark. But I am hoping that as the Renaissance came from the Dark Ages, there will be some beautiful enlightenment that will change how we view ourselves, each other, and the world. Maybe the answer is in the way Turing saw the world. Maybe when a machine can be a man... We will see all the horror that we produce, and that mirror will be enough for us to change. And that is the story of Alan Turing, a brilliant light extinguished by hate. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring. <laughs>